like this. Oh. It's kind of one of those things. It's like the duck. You know, you see a duck in the water, right? The duck looks like it's cool, but the duck's freaking working hard under the water. Wow, I'm working hard, working hard. That's how hard places. We look cool, but we're working hard. All right, so welcome to another episode of the Duck Legs Podcast. We have Dr. Jared Hall and Dr. Mark Powers. You may have seen them all over social media, correcting all of the nonsense and, and craziness that go on out there and just having fun pointing people to evidence-based practice. And that's why we brought them on to the show. Thank you, fellas, for coming on. That's right. Yeah, no problem, man. Thanks for having yeah, us. Absolutely. Thanks we for having us. We basically have like the Neil deGrasse Tyson and Bill Nye of physiotherapy on with us right now. <laughs> I don't know which one I am. <laughs> I'll take either. That's cool. Well, no, I don't want Bill Nye, actually. No? <laughs> What's wrong with Bill Nye? He's more of a self-proclaimed scientist, but that's a whole other story. Okay. Let's, go, right. let's go Robert Kapolsky and Neil deGrasse Tyson. Yeah. Okay. Sounds good. Sounds good. I could have sworn he was an actual scientist. I think he got, didn't he get a degree in, like, engineering or something? I think it's, yeah, but that's – yeah, but he – I don't know. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Long story, we'll talk about it later. Yeah, we can trash Bill Nye on another episode. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, like before we uh, hit record, we were talking a little bit about sports. So there was a recent team. I'm not going to say who they were because I feel like they win the Super Bowl every year. Holla. Just won the Super Bowl. Mark, how do uh, you feel about that? Oh, man, being in Georgia for it was like fantastic. <laughs> I was good, man. I didn't talk shit at all the entire game. You know, I was getting blown up. I'm like, hey, man, if anyone's going to come back right now, it's going to be Tom Brady and Bill Belichick. But when that game ended, I was up till 2 in the morning just texting people left and right, just ripping into people. You, that was good during the game. But You, you totally should have went Facebook Live. Forget like, <laughs> everybody, because I'm sure that you got people that uh, you know in Massachusetts and also in Georgia, and I would have been all over the Georgia people. Yeah, I was up to like probably two thirty, three in the morning, just texting people. <laughs> uh, I know that you had a, a day off at the clinic the next day, didn't you? Uh, you had to go uh, to work. No, I think I went in. Oh yeah, no, I would took a, a, a self holiday. I'm sick. You don't feel any regret for what you did to Atlanta? Oh hell no. Okay. Oh, I yeah. mean, but the thing is, like, I'm a, I'm a Matt Ryan fan too. Like, they weren't playing the Pats. I would have pulled for the Falcons. I started liking the Falcons since I've lived down here in Georgia, but they're playing each other, man. I got to stick with my home teams for sure. And how long have you lived in Georgia? Uh, since 2008. And what's and you're from up north, right? You're from the New England area? Yeah, I'm from Massachusetts. So. Okay. Could, I could not tell that at all by your voice. Just want to let you know. Um, so what's, what's one of the biggest differences uh, moving down from up north that you find down, down in the south, down in Georgia? <laughs> it's, uh, it's way slower. <laughs> Which I like, actually. Mentally or? No, no, no. Just like life. Like not – Back home, you know, everybody's in a rush to do everything all the time, and it's not like that down here. Gotcha. Hence the traffic that you wait in for 12 hours, it seems like. <laughs> That's why you put your clinic one mile from your house. <laughs> Genius. Oh, <laughs> I know where I'm staying yet. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> if you had to pick north or south, Mark. In what? In, in just living. Where would you prefer uh, to live? Uh, I'd like to go to western North Carolina. Okay. Because I'm a mountain guy. But I don't know. The winters I get home, like, oh, they're getting worse and worse. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, but the Savannah's a cool town. So, there's worse places to be for sure. Yeah. Speaking of another uh, shitty place to live, I think Dr. Uh, old J Rod has been to Italy recently. I saw him posting about that, talking about uh, the Italian lifestyle where you can eat gelato all the time. And as long as you walk a couple miles per day, you'll be good. Um, any thoughts on the gelato eating, moving, wine drinking, laid back lifestyle of the Italians? Yeah, man, it was, it was pretty interesting being over there because it's, uh, it's just a totally different pace of life than what I'm used to. And, you know, I live in the South, I live in Texas. That's that slower pace of life that, you know, Mark is talking about compared to the Northeast and Italy is like 10 times slower than, than living in Texas. Unless you're in like the Well, what's going on? <laughs> Tyler's here, and my dog did not like it. My dog hates Tyler, but sorry. Um, unless you're in like the heart of Rome or something. I mean, everybody kind of takes their time at the restaurant. Servers don't get in a rush. Everybody sits down. They enjoy each other's company. A meal might take two or three hours to go through. You're just, you know, 
enjoying the food, enjoying the gelato, enjoying the wine. You have wine for lunch. You have gelato after lunch, wine at dinner, gelato after dinner. But the big thing is everyone walks everywhere. You, you're going up and down stairs constantly. You're not going to find an escalator. You're not going to find an elevator. I mean, me and my wife, we were just booking it everywhere. We averaged like 25 to 30,000 steps a day while we were there. Jeez. So I don't know how many miles that is, but it's a lot. <laughs> Hell yeah. We, I, I, I think she actually got in better shape. I, I, I got kind of frumpy because I wasn't lifting weights. But <laughs> she got in better shape while we were in Italy. What's your favorite lift? Just to go on subject a little bit. Oh man, I don't know. That's hard. All of them. Oh yeah. Uh, sure. <laughs> uh, anything, anything with a barbell, man. I, I, I love, I love pressing. You know, I'm a big bench press incline, you know, dumbbell barbell type of guy. I'm classic meathead bodybuilder approach when I get into the gym. I haven't, I haven't stepped over to the dark side into CrossFit world with Mark yet. Hey, hey, man, come set the juice, dude. <laughs> right, right. He's not ready yet. That's all. That's all. <laughs> no evidence behind it yet. Uh, so uh, getting into that, well, there's some evidence. But getting into that, so the reason why we brought you on is because we want a great episode of two evidence-based clinicians uh, coming on here and explaining the way this EVP model, uh, evidence-based practice model, and uh, pretty much trying to discuss the three chairs of that. So without any further setup, um, what do you all believe is the most important uh, leg, for instance, uh, of the EBP model. If, if, if you all even believe in the stool, <laughs> Mark, Mark, you want to take this one first? Sure, sure. I'll get started. Um, it's funny when you look at this stool, and I'm sure Dr. Hall can correct me if I'm wrong, but the stool wasn't in the original second article that came later. Mm -hmm. You know, it, <clears throat> I'm not a big fan of the stool because it kind of shows that all three are equal. And I don't think that all three of those, like, like I don't think each one should be 33.333% of your treatment design, if you will. Right. But there needs to be a dynamic interplay between all three. But I'm sorry, I got to put research on top of the other two because without that, I mean, I don't think we're any better off than any of these other, you know, conservative alternative medicines that you see out there without a, I don't even like to call it evidence. I like to, I like to call it more like science-based care. Absolutely. Because you have you know outcome measures that show you know good evidence quote unquote, but if there's no scientific plausibility to that, I'm not sure we're any better off. So I'd have to put the clinical research leg, if you will, above the other two. Yeah, I would I would definitely have to agree with that. Um, actually, Mark and I were talking about this the other day, and the way that I look at it is kind of like. Um, one of those little kids play toys with the rings and the stick where they stack like the rings one on top of the, uh, on top of the other. And the, the biggest ring is at the bottom and the smallest ring is at the top. It makes a little pyramid. Yeah. So I look at, you know, the evidence-based practice model much more like that instead of like a stool with the, the foundation, the biggest ring has to be the evidence. And then maybe one of the next rings is clinical experience. And maybe one of the next rings is patient values and, they kind of build on top of each other. So your clinical experience and, and your patient values kind of have to be taken into account within the biggest ring of, of the best evidence that we have right now. And like Mark was talking about, it's gotta be, it's gotta be science-based too. It's, it can't just be a research study that was done because we all know that you can find a research study to justify basically anything. Doesn't mean it was a good research study, but there's gotta be biological plausibility. You know, I mean, if we think about just clinical experience or just patient values, let's go back 150 years in medicine and, and talk about frontal lobotomies and let's talk about trepanation and stuff Ooh. like that. I mean, clinically, these guys saw it work, right? Or bloodletting, let's let out six quarts of blood and then like the patient got better. So clearly letting all their blood out work, right? Yeah. So clinical experience is, it's really, it's good, but it's really fallible too. I mean, we're humans, we make mistakes, we draw funny conclusions, we have post hoc reasoning, you know, we think that because we did one thing and somebody get got better, it it must have been that thing. When that's that's just not always the case. And when we like have good randomized control trials to show that what does and doesn't work, we we have to have that at the base of what we do. Is there something that you use in clinic when you're feeling like 
you know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm kind of going maybe against the researcher. This is maybe going against the guideline or not, or this is some atypical uh, response that I'm seeing to inter- to an intervention. Is there something, a mindset or a little mental tool that you use to kind of put yourself in check to be like, well, we can't say that this is a, a, a true correlation or causation for this treatment. I shouldn't, I shouldn't get my panties up in a bunch just because I'm seeing something weird or like take this new route of how to work with somebody. I mean, absolutely. I, you know, Roger Carey is, is big on, you know, if you guys know who Roger Carey is, the N equals one. Every patient is their own experiment, and every patient is a little bit different based on their history, their beliefs, their experiences, so on and so forth. And, like, that randomized control trial might not fit them exactly perfectly. You know, physical therapy just hasn't got to the point where we can do big enough, well-designed enough randomized control trials to to have the exact evidence for everything. But when you use it as a basis and you use, you know, biological plausibility and scientific reasoning to, to guide your intervention, it still leaves you some wiggle room to do some things that maybe are kind of one way or the other. They're sketchy in the evidence. They haven't been proven wrong, but they haven't been proven right. Or your clinical experience tells you that, you know, this did work really well for another person that was similar to this. So maybe I'll give it a try and, and see what it looks like. The, the caveat to that is when you do one of those treatments, let's say, I, I, I don't know, I don't want to start a crap storm, but let's say dry needling, right? Yeah. Somebody <laughs> we lasted like three minutes before that came up. That's incredible. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Wait, waiting for it. <laughs> so well, let, let's say like somebody dry needles somebody and they like feel like they get all this good response, whatever. So the research is all over the place on it, right? It depends on which systematic review you look at. Does it have a minute effect? Is it just placebo? Whatever. Let's not get into it. But <clears throat> when you apply that treatment, say, say that you, you do dry needle somebody you damn sure don't explain it as some ridiculous like breaking up of adhesions or crazy trigger point latent satellite uh, mysterious trigger point phenomenon. You might just tell the patient, hey, you know what? Me sticking this needle into your upper trap, it, it might cause a descending noxious inhibitory control. You can explain to them what that is. Like, hey, you know, when, when, I, when I poke you with something scary, your brain actually turns on pathways that block out the sensation of pain or diminish your sensation of pain. So we could be using this as a temporary intervention to calm your system down for a short period of time. It's not magic, you know, we're, we're, and that leads into the ability to talk about pain science. That leads into the ability to talk about pain as an output. That leads into the ability to talk about neurophysiologic changes in the body. So how you frame that sketchy intervention can completely change the dynamic of how you interact with your patient and can completely change the possibility of nocebo and thought viruses that you get implanted into their head that they, they walk away from your clinic with for the rest of their life. All right. Beautifully said. Now, now I can, I can dig that. I can dig that Dr. Hall, but I, I've heard you speak about, I've heard you speak this morning on a certain topic. I want to get Mark's opinion. That was, that was beautifully put. That was well said. I, you know, that's, I can't find anything wrong with that, but I'm going to play devil's advocate. I'm going to play the, the, uh, the early 2000 Stephen Colbert to your well-distinguished uh, representative. Now, what if, what if I'm trying to market to these, to these masses, Mark? What if I'm trying to sell? I'm trying to push product over here. Can I come out and say muscles are dead and only by my hands and my uh, treatments can I res- resurrect a dead ass or a dead glute mead <laughs> that died because muscles can die and they're dead? No, no, <laughs> no. I, what if I want to? What if it's what if it sells newspapers that yeah. don't sell anymore? And that's the biggest issue we have right now is that you know that crap does sell. And I think you know I'm kind of when it comes to patient preferences or whatever, like expectations, I probably take a little bit harder approach than most do. Like my, for instance, like my, my STEM machine hasn't been on since the day I got in September or it's kind of, I take a more of approach a lot of times of, you know, this is what you got going on. This is what science and research shows is the best thing for this. So this is what we're going to do. And 
you know, it kind of is what it is. You know, I'm pretty blunt with my patients sometimes and they usually respect that overall, but you know, it's, I don't know. I'll get kind of into it, I guess, but you know, as PTs, it's time, it's time we walk the walk, you know, it's, it's time we stop doing dumb stuff. Like, you know, if we can't, you know, yeah, we're, you know, we all the time on Facebook, you see like, you know, going against chiropractors and these other things that are, you know, treating this or explaining all have outdated explanations like pelvic anonymous and rotations and stuff like that. But there's plenty of PTs out there doing the same stuff. So I think before we start kind of going a lot after these articles and other professions promoting this outdated or these explanations that don't have any science behind it, we need to take a deep, dark look at ourselves first and say like, hey, are we doing everything we can as a profession to work away from ourselves and you know, I'm not, I'm not so sure we're there yet. Part of me thinks that most people for, you know, acute low back pain, if they walk to a PT clinic right now, are going to start getting three or four units of stuff, you know, prescribed three times a week for four to six weeks. And it's, well, we know acute low back pain is probably going to get better on its own. And I don't want to sound cynical because I'm not cynical, but I think we need to take a deep look at ourselves and how, you know, we're really working with our patients and what type of interventions we're doing before we start you know, kind of going after anybody else, if that makes sense. Well, I am cynical, Mark, and I'm going to jump on your bandwagon there. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and you're right, you know, the, the average patient is going to get a referral or they're going to walk into the clinic for their acute low back pain that we know evidence says, hey, the vast majority of this gets better within four to six weeks. And somebody's going to start treating them. They're going to do cupping. They're going to do this. They're going to do that. They're going to wave their uh, hypersonic sound wand at them or whatever. And eventually, over the course of that four or six weeks, the patient is going to get better. Well, then we have the problem that the patient thinks and the therapist thinks all those bogus treatments got them better, right? So it was just natural history of the condition. Or if the patient has a recurrent issue, it was just regression to the mean, you know, it's just statistics. And we're going to go ahead and jump up on our pedestal or high horse and talk about how fantastic our intervention was and how much of a savior we are. But really all we did was entertain somebody while they got better on their own. Yep. <laughs> Keep them entertained. That's I, I want to open up a clinic called regression to the mean physical therapy. And that might work good. <laughs> and I'm not saying like you don't have to intervene at all. Like it's not like a, you know, I, I do think we have a role in the kilo back pain as far as like, you know, reducing the threat, promoting movement, you know, maybe see them once and then, Hey, check back in with me in a couple of weeks, stuff like that. But it's just, we talk a lot about over, over utilization. And I think, I, I mean, we're just as guilty of it as most other professions. I think right now, as far as when you look at the grand scheme of things, so it's time to, you know, we talk to talk a lot about wanting to be primary contact providers and, and, and doc, you know, treated like doctors and things like that. But I think, you know, we, we got to walk the walk too. We got to, we got to do what's right for our patients and follow science. And I'm just not sure we're totally there yet. I think we're heading in the right direction, especially when I talk to students like you guys and stuff on Facebook, but you know, it's, a, I think a reality check every now and then is in order as well. You know, the thing we've, we've looked inward enough yet at ourselves and, we purify our, our profession for lack of a better term. Right. No, no, I think, I think Mark's right. And, and we can't get into the mindset of, uh, well, the patient just walks into my door and I tell them this is going to get better in six weeks. I'll see you later. Because in reality, they're just going to go down the street to the next guy that's going to tell them a bunch of BS that, right. that gets their mind all messed up. But what you could do, you know, my, my typical management for somebody with acute low back pain is I, I see them every seven to 10 days. Mm -hmm. So I, I educate them. I get them started on some entry-level exercises, you know, that are right for them at that specific time. They follow back up in seven to 10 days. Hey, how you doing? Okay, you're 30% better. You can move this much further. Let's go to some higher level exercises. Let me reconfirm to you that nothing is wrong. Let me reconfirm to you about pain science. Let's talk about education. Let's get you comfortable. Let's get you confident. Let's build your self-efficacy. Let's give you some new and fresh stuff to work on when you walk out the door and come back and see me in seven to 10 more days. And, you know, we'll see where you're at. So, you know, this episode of low back pain, instead of three times a week for six weeks, 18 visits, maybe it's only four visits or maybe it's only five visits. I'm still treating them. I'm still helping them. I'm still playing a really valuable role, but I'm not just 
overutilizing the crap out of their insurance, and I'm not overutilizing the crap out of interventions that don't need to be done. Uh, follow up question: How do uh, we like able to do that with a capitalist society that we live in that wants to look at that business and say, "Hey, you know what? I'm going to get all of that that I can in order to treat this acute low back pain." How how is that possible in this capitalist society? <laughs> it's hard. There's a thin margin. Thin. Uh, you got to keep your doors open. You got to do the right thing. You you have to make a profit. You have to you have to run your business. But I can assure you that if you move into an arena and you start doing that six months, eight months time, all of a sudden, all those patients that had that a flare of back pain that felt really empowered, that had their self-efficacy built, that felt, felt like they only got, you know, only took three or four visits to get better, they're going to refer their friends to you. They're going to go back and tell their doc, man, this was different than any other physical therapy I've been to. I didn't lay on the table. He didn't poke on me. He didn't you know, like make me do a bunch of transverse abdominals hollowing. He told me I was strong and he got me back going and it hardly took any time while I was better. Right? Nice. So you, you get more patients instead of more visits. And to me, more patients is better than more visits. Absolutely. Yeah, I would totally agree with that. You're I mean, you're exactly right. They're going to, you know, because most of the people, I don't know where it is with you guys, but a lot of the people I see in my clinic have had therapy somewhere else before. And I can almost predict how many times they went, what type of treatments they got. So like Jared said, if you can offer something different and say, yeah, you've been treated for this, you know, two years ago and it took 18 visits, 20 visits to feel better when all of a sudden they're, you know, they're better with you in eight, especially when you look at how much co-pays are and deductibles now and stuff. Mm-hmm. That person has a $60 copay and you got them better in six visits. Yeah. They're going to tell all their family and friends, like, like Jared said, you know, Hey, you know, I went to this other place. It took forever. I went to this other place and man, he was awesome. You know, he, he got me exercising. I felt great. You know, it didn't take nearly as long It saved me a bunch of money. You'll make up for the referrals. Awesome. You've, you've sure. built that trustworthy brand. Now you, you've got a face in the community. People trust you. I'd imagine you know, from, from building as a, as I read in one of Dr. Hall's posts, you're building a therapeutic alliance. You're coming alongside the patient, taking their hand, walking with them through the journey instead of, I like this term, treating down at somebody, which is very hard uh, for me, you know, being a student, trying to learn all this information, you, you kind of do have a, a superior, a superiority complex kind of sinks in, right, Tyler, when you're like, well, I know so much now, I'm going to look down at you patient and tell you what's wrong with you. I'm going to be your fixer kind of, and that's a hard mentality to shake and break once you've, as you're trying to learn all this stuff, you know? Yeah. We really need to be interactors and not operators. Yeah. It reminds me of a drama triangle where there's the hero, the villain, and also the, 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 the victim, right? So try not to be the hero, the hero, the villain, and the physical therapist. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. I don't know where we lie in the continuum. We had that conversation. I don't know if y'all are Star Wars fans, but we just had a conversation with Scotty Butcher and we had to kind of put uh, physical therapists on the gray side between the light and dark. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're trying to be more uh, gray Jedis, I believe. Not go too much in the dark side, not go too much into the light. Just a, a fine balance. Yeah, so uh, we we are discussing uh, the, the issues that rely... Don't just play off my Star Wars references, Nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> I don't watch Star Wars. You already talked about it on the last episode. All right, all right. I don't want to talk about it anymore. It's whatever. Okay. Whenever I find time between PT school and other stuff that I do, which is PT related anyways, then I'll watch Star Wars. I'm sorry. All I'll right. Get okay. All right. Anyway, so get to the next question. Uh, so we're talking about the you know the issues within physical therapy and and then we got all these grand problems, but what would be some places that, well, I guess the first place you all will start at to sort of kind of reset the profession. And I know this is a grandiose question, but just give me one thing, whether would it start at schools, continuing ed, would it start, you know, maybe out in the public, you know, start trying to look, you know, or maybe not look necessarily inward, but outward. Where, where would you all start at? I'm going I'm to let you go first, Mark. Man, I, I'm picking up a theme here. <laughs> Honestly, like we joke about, I'm sure what I'm going to say is probably along the lines what you're going to say. It seems like when Dr. Hall and I interact on Facebook, we're like in each other's heads all the time. So what I would, I'd really like to kind of restart at the point of, you know, how we educate 
PT students about pain. I think we've really missed the mark there. Mm-hmm. You know, we've learned a lot more about pain in probably the last 20 years or so than the hundred years before that. But I still don't think we're, we're, we're where we need to be. I think it's getting better, especially when you interact with all these students online who are coming out with an understanding of, you know, pain is not tissue dependent. It's a protective output, but I'd restart. I, I'd, I'd restart there with having a firm understanding of pain in the, in the nervous system in general. If it, you know, when I graduated, and I'm, I'm probably not the only one, the reason I got a lot into this pain science stuff, if you will, is all of a sudden I realized I, I'd been treating people in pain for two years. I couldn't tell you the definition of what pain was. Mm. I was like, that's probably not good. Mm. <laughs> right. Since 99% of the people I work with, if not 100%, most of the time are presenting because they have pain with something. So I think it all starts with that. It, it's hard to educate and treat people in pain if we don't have a firm understanding on what pain is or why pain occurs. So that's where I would start is just a better understanding and a better method of, you know, educating students early on, on what pain is and, you know, what we need to do for it. Is there one piece of advice you'd give to students coming out to how, on how to think differently about pain? It's kind of a complex yeah, really, thing to throw at you. I'm sorry. No, 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 no. It's a good question. Um, I really try to hit home with all my students that, you know, the multidimensional biopsychosocial aspect of pain that all these abnormal findings we think we find aren't abnormal. And really it all starts with phantom limb pain. You know, that's, that's where all this started. And somehow it, it's kind of confusing that with phantom limb pain, we're still so stuck on like a structural explanation for pain. Yeah. But mm. we know all these people who don't have that structure anymore have pain. Mm. So how have we not moved on from that by now? And that, so that's where I would start is just a better on focus way more like I'm like way more time in PT school on what pain is, like what it is. <laughs> Can you tell me the definition of pain? That is- I, couldn't, I couldn't agree more, Mark. I mean, I think that, obvi- I mean, obviously that is the most pressing, the most important aspect of, of what we need to be better about in our profession, not even our profession, but in every single health and medical profession out there, we need to be better about this because, you know, it, it, every single person that interacts with the patient is, is creating a possible placebo or possible nocebo all the time. So um, Mark Cargella talks a lot about uh, peri-pain education. You know, everything that you do, everything that you say to every patient, every person that you interact with, should eat, sleep, and breathe the correct approach to pain. You know, you don't just talk to your um, lateral ankle sprain like it's all tissue damage. You talk about, yeah, you know, you damage some tissues. What that does is it, you know, it, it ramps up your nervous system. You're getting all these messages to your brain saying damage, and your, your brain perceives threat. And because of that, that's why you're having this pain. You know, if we slowly load this ankle over time, it's going to decrease that sensitivity. It's going to feel a lot better. Like, yeah, this is a lateral ankle sprain, and there is truly a nociceptive component. There's truly a tissue pathology, but that doesn't mean that you can't weave in a little bit of peri-pain education. So the next time they get hurt, they might hear your voice in the back of their head saying, ah, you know, this this is my back. It's just sensitive. It's just flared up right now. My My brain's telling me that, like, there's some danger going on, but if I just slowly load it over time, if I just keep moving, this is going to calm down. This is going to get better. You know, that you should be telling your mom this, you should be telling your friends this, you should be telling, you know, anybody that asks you a injury, speak in purposeful and meaningful ways that set them up to not have a negative outlook, but maybe more of a positive or level-headed outlook towards injury and pain. So uh, we have a few minutes left on this call. I, I, I know, Mark, before you hopped on, we were talking about uh, potentially sending you all out another link Go ahead and rip another episode if uh, you you, you got to get going and we'll understand. I don't have anything to do. Okay, I got a six pack of IPAs, man. I'm good to go. Oh yeah. Ooh. What are you drinking, man? What are you drinking? I need to I need to pour a, a second one. Uh, right now, I have the 21st Amendment Brew Free or Die IPA. Oh man, I feel like such a little girl right now. <laughs> don't tell me Blue Moon and you'll be fine. No, 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 no. So uh, I was feeling in the summer mood. It's really hot right here in Texas right now. So I got a Sierra Nevada Tropical Torpedo. So it's a tropical IPA. Like, oh, I so, almost got that one. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Dude, it is freaking delicious. It's one of the best IPAs I've run across in a long time. Like the first one went down like a, like a glass of water. Cool. Nice. I'll, I'll, I'll grab that one up next time. And meanwhile, I'm just sitting over here trying to eat some frozen yogurt. So... Uh, <laughs> 
uh, I don't drink, so I'm really awkward. My two roommates have to explain to me all the time IPAs, lagers, all this kind of good stuff. So it's always good to hear them chat beer. That's a, it's hey, it's not the PT podcast. It's okay. You don't have to drink that beer. We're all good. And we're back. Just finished chatting about Andy Milanakis and how old he was, which is quite relevant for a physical therapy podcast. Um, Tyler, any physical therapy advice that you want to give to Andy Milanakis? I think he could maybe like, you know, lean up a bit. Lean up a bit. Wouldn't be so hard on his He was a slumper on the show. Oh my God, that's a beautiful segue. Dr. Hall, posture. Is it the most important thing or kind of an important thing? Oh man, you're, you're hitting me with loaded questions, dude. Not really. Um, loaded like a vertebral joint in a slumped position? Ah, yes. Yeah. So it's definitely not even anywhere close to the most important thing. Um, you know, you guys, I guess, uh, saw the video that I put out recently talking a little bit about posture, trying to dispel some of the myths about posture. You know, there's the myths are pretty pervasive. They're still in physical therapy school. They're still in medical school. They're in massage. They're in personal training. They're in Pilates, whatever. Everywhere you look, everything's all about posture. Yeah. I mean, the, the truth of the matter is we, we do like huge prospective studies with hundreds and thousands of people and we measure their posture and we follow them over time. And there is zero correlation between the amount of, you know, thoracic kyphosis you have and the likelihood of developing shoulder or neck pain. Uh, that's not to say that if somebody comes into your clinic and they have neck pain, and you're like, hey man, let's try sitting up straight, let's work on your thoracic mobility, let's bend your upper back backwards a little bit, that it's not gonna help them to feel better. But it's, it's not because you're changing their posture. All the research shows that even repeated postural exercises, joint mobility exercises, uh, strengthening, stretching, this, this stuff doesn't really change resting posture. It might change your, your joint mobility, your ability to get into new positions, you know, like might change your range of motion, but it doesn't really change your resting posture. And, you know, I'll have to find the link and you guys can attach it here. But I remember a couple of months ago, I was reading back through studying for the, uh, for the OCS exam. And, um, I came across this one study that showed across a large population of asymptomatic pain-free people, um, these were adolescents, the variation in thoracic kyphosis was anywhere from 42 to 5 degrees in normal healthy subjects. So you, you, you picture the difference between 5 and 42 degrees, just, this is just anatomic variation. This is my vertebrae are shaped different than your vertebrae. My ribs are shaped different than your ribs. My torso is longer than your torso, so I have the ability to to increase the degree of curve that I have in my thoracic spine. There's, there's so much anatomic variation. There's so much difference. Resting posture, just bending posture, just doesn't really have anything to do with the likelihood of pain or the likelihood of injury. Great, and, and uh, just, just to follow up, what about loading? So, so we talk about resting posture right now, but what about loading, uh, let's say in the back squat or anything that do a, you believe that, the, that there's an optimal position for that? So I think that there is definitely an optimum position for force output for specific movements. So, you know, if you're, if you're going to lift something off the ground, it's, it's really a good idea to have it as close to your axis of rotation as possible, right? Because this decreases the moment arm and you don't have to produce as much force to lift the weight off the ground. Um, and if you're going to jump off of a house and you're going to land, you know, from a 10 or 15 foot jump, you probably want to land with your muscles in, you know, as close to a neutral position as, as, as you can. So you can have the highest likelihood of absorbing the force. So the vectors of the impact force can transmit up the long axis of your bones and that sort of thing. So you don't tear your ACL, you don't break your tibia, you don't do this, you don't do that. But these are maximum force or maximum impact activities. Right. Uh, so absolutely the further and further you get towards maximum output or high force the more important 
positioning becomes, but with everyday walking and sitting, this is the lowest force activity that you could possibly think of. There's, there's essentially no load on your joints. So there's, there, there's really no risk of injury and there's no risk of doing something that your body can't adapt to. I mean, when, when you're just sitting and walking around, you use two to 4% of the maximum voluntary contraction of your abdominals. And um, in spinal loading studies, we see that in weightlifting, the spine can withstand like 36,000 newtons of force on average. So, so just, just standing around is not going to injure you. But you know what? If you're back squatting and you got five plates on, on the bar and you're going down into a deep squat, it's probably in your best interest to try as hard as you can to stay close to a neutral range. But if you look at uh, some of the stuff that Greg Lehman's putting out, you'll, you'll see that even when you look like you're perfectly neutral, you might still be in 30 or 40 degrees of lumbar flexion, but you know that's not necessarily end-end range lumbar flexion flexion but it, it's definitely flexing and, and not staying lordotic like everybody likes to think that it is right i understand so dr mark do uh, we have you back on yeah man i'm good okay awesome so i just want to follow that question with uh just you know i see you on facebook putting out all these amazing videos of you squatting 500 pounds and yeah. lifting 400 and just completely just destroying all of my numbers so i just wanted to know how has you gaining that i guess your movement practice or movement system help you with your everyday practice has 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 it changed a lot or not not really it it has changed it a lot in the way that it's really helped me it's helped me a lot with my my exercise selection as far as varying up movements and varying up treatments mm -hmm. um you know i'm not going to be one of those i'm not one of those guys that's like every pt client should have a barbell you know with what we do i don't think you can really talk in absolutes for anything just with how individualized a person's pain experience is and stuff, but it's given, especially CrossFit in general, has given me a lot of new ideas on how to get people moving in different directions. It's like smaller novel movements that their nervous systems might respond pretty well to. Mm -hmm. And it has given me the tools to use heavier lifting as a way to instill confidence in some of my patients with back pain. You know, if you can, if you can teach that, you know, if you can get them lifting decent weight around the ground without pain, I think that could carry over into them not being so concerned with picking up a full laundry basket at home. But I do think we need to be careful that we don't go too far with it. Like, I don't get super into cueing or super like crazy form or like making sure their back is perfectly neutral and their shoulder blades are back. Like say we're doing a deadlift. I don't spend forever working right. on the deadlift. I, I'll, I'll simply just say, you know, bend your knees a little bit, keep your chest up and try picking up this weight and see how that goes. Cause I do think if we go too far into form and position that we can almost cause like a PT kinesiophobia, if that makes sense, where right. These patients go back home or they go out to their work and they're afraid to lift anything in lesser and perfect form, which could almost make them think that their back is more fragile than it is. So there's a happy medium there, but uh, it, it's definitely helped me vary on my movements. It's definitely helped me kind of get to those higher level functional movements with patients than before I started lifting, before I got into CrossFit and things like that. Absolutely. That seems like a very thin line to walk too, because you want to give them the best coaching cues but like you said you also don't want them to revert back to the fear-mongering state of oh my, my spine is not in the most optimal position when i'm picking this up i'm at risk or what if my ass is asleep now or it has amnesia <laughs> because of that <laughs> article i read yeah, yeah. You're, you're exactly there's i think there's definitely a fine line i mean i don't want my patients going to pick up something somewhat heavy and being like like you said oh my gosh my back good oh my gosh my, and then god forbid they feel something a little off they're like Oh shit! It's because my back wasn't perfect. My yep. back. I knew I didn't brace correctly. That's so, on me. Yep. I, I mean, I, I don't do a lot of cueing. I really don't. I think even in you know heavier weightlifting, we overcomplicate things dramatically as far as deadlifts and stuff like that. Sometimes I think you just need to say like, "Hey, man, keep your chest up, pick up this weight, and see how it goes." So you don't think our granny should be setting up to a barbell like Mark Bell, bracing, breathing <laughs> heavily, smelling some nasty smelling salt no, just to get ready on or stuff yeah yeah put on a weight belt every time you need to do things around the house but hell yeah 
But no, wow. there was a happy medium, but it's it's helped me vary up treatments and come up with different options. I kind of want to dovetail a little bit off of what Mark was just talking about there because I think it's a pretty important topic. I think that, uh, you know, trying to coach perfect form with uh, your average run-of-the-mill patient that's not going to be competing at a, you know, a USAA or USA powerlifting competition, it, it, it can have implications because I'm thinking of a patient that I'm treating right now. This guy is a former uh, college football player and track runner, and he has just terrible back pain. He's got nine months of this, the worst back pain that he's ever had in his life. And I asked this guy to do a squat and I asked him to do a deadlift and the guy blew me out of the water on his form. I mean, it was the most beautiful squat, the most beautiful deadlift I've ever seen in my life, but he has pain and he refuses at all costs to allow any flexion to uh, enter into his lumbar spine. So I, I, committed blasphemy and I started asking this guy to start to lift and to bend and to deadlift and to squat with a rounded back. We're working on getting into, you know, your quote unquote third world squat, rounding out his lumbar spine as much as he can. He's doing lunges, rounding out his low back as much as he can with his hands on his low back for tactile cueing. This guy has zero awareness of his lumbar spine and doesn't know anything other than hyperextension all the time because that's what he's been taught and that's what he's been trained is the only thing that will prevent his back pain. I asked him the question. I was like, hey, dude, if keeping your back like this is supposed to prevent back pain, why do you have such bad back pain right now? And he couldn't give me an answer. Mike, draw that, uh, that allowed me, that opened up the door for me to, hit, to talk to him about cortical smudging, about um, impaired kinesthetic awareness of his lumbar spine, inability to control through movements. So we started working on uh, two-point discrimination on his low back. We started working on graphesthesia on his low back. We started having him give uh, a lot of his own tactile cueing to his low back. Immediately, he puts his hand on his low back and he can get 20 or 30 more degrees of, of flexion in his lumbar spine just by him putting his own hand. Then that segued straight into mirror therapy. Hey, guy, I want you to bend forward. I want you to do squats. I want you to wiggle all around in every way that you feel like you want to while looking at your back in the mirror. Hell yeah. Mm -hmm. And in two visits, this guy feels better. I mean, I'm no magician, but the two guys, two visits, this guy feels better than he has in like six months. And it's just by empowering him to know that he's not going to blow out a disc if he lets his low back flex a little bit and, and increasing his awareness and his body control in that area. And I know this. This is something that Mark is pretty passionate about. Yeah. Like for the other day on Facebook, Zach Fox had a picture of a patient of his doing a deadlift and the form wasn't terrible, but also like Jared said, like this guy's goal is not to become a professional deadlifter. Mm. He just wants to not have back pain. So we don't need to overcomplicate things. I just want my guy, I just want my patients to be able to pick up things pretty much however they want to pick them up without pain. Absolutely. That's the goal. Jerry, you got a question? Yeah. So for this, for this, uh, for a Dr. Hall's patient that we're talking about, I kind of, this is something that me and Tyler, we've, we've been learning and we we're still trying to wrap our heads around and kind of make sense of the bigger picture, right? We've talked about a common theme that in our most recent discussions have been, you know, pain has, is not structural, structurally related and that you don't necessarily need to create a tissue change to give somebody an increased range of motion or increased performance, yada, yada, yada. So for Dr. Hall's patient just now, would, would you say any tissue change had been made to increase or decrease this patient's performance or pain during your uh, treatments? So I wouldn't say that any uh, tissue change in his periphery, no tissue change in his back, no tissue change in his hips or his legs, but there very well could have been, you know, some quote unquote tissue changes happening in his brain and uh, the somatosensory homunculus, maybe his, his body awareness uh, is, is remapping itself at this point, you know, nerves that uh, fire together, wire together, that whole thing. If he's getting a whole heck of a lot of feedback, tactile, visual, verbal cueing about his back, and he's able to see that, he's able to feel that, he's able to integrate that all at one time. 
all of a sudden that uh, that area that might be a little bit, you know, quote unquote smudged in his brain that doesn't have a good, nice firing pattern, all of a sudden it grooves down really good and it kind of, it prunes its connections from the uh, elicitation of the pain response. So that neuro tag of him squatting and bending his back no longer has a, a neural connection or a propensity to activate an output of pain. All of a sudden it's just his normal regular movement and we, we've sharpened down that cortical map sharpening the map sharpen the map and that's, you just, that's another clinic that i want to open Sorry. <laughs> yeah and you totally just threw me the alley you to ask mark this question are you seriously going to get a homunculus tattoo <laughs> and, and 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 before you answer that it's kind of funny because you kind of look like the guy in a little bit no? wait what I mean, not really the guy, but like, you know, it's a regular picture of him just, anyway. You did not just say that our guest looks or kind of resembles (laughs) a homunculus. I mean, he has like a bald head. That's it. That's it. That's all I'm trying to say. All bald guys look the same. (laughs) Oh, that's, Dimir, no. We're losing the bald audience, Dimir. You know what? You're right. You're right. Honestly, that that, that Facebook post came like the other night. I was working on some GMI presentations for, um, the residency and fellowship program I teach, and it was like one thirty in the morning. I was losing my mind, and then so it started off as a joke. And I'm like, I don't know, man. That'd be kind of cool. It'd be a good conversation starter. It would. But but then I'm like, well, shit. Would I have to get two, the sensory and the motor? <laughs> <laughs> and then I'm like, do I really want some guys like huge testes like tattooed on me too? So yeah, no. I don't know, man. We'll see. I don't. I'm pretty sure my wife wouldn't go for it. So, so. yeah, but. You almost feel bad for the homunculus guy, which you do not look like, by the way. Dr. Thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, no, he doesn't. <laughs> what, are you, what are you saying, Tyler? You're looking at you're just scrolling through pictures of homunculus right now. Yeah, <laughs> or homunculi. Sorry, we don't and mean that's to. That's a conversation starter. Like if I got that somewhere that people could see, they'd be like, "Hey, what the hell is that?" And then who knows? Maybe it could lead into direct access patients. Well, there you go. Not not down in Texas, unfortunately, but oh, no, nothing's bringing direct access down in Texas. Oh no, is that Doctor Hall? Do you want to speak uh, quickly on the state of affairs in Texas? I don't know, man. You guys are making the vein on the side of my head pop out right now. Oh, sorry, <laughs> sorry about that. Um, Doctor Hall has been riled up since about two o'clock when that video was <laughs> in the afternoon. So, yeah, um, yeah, direct access. That's a, that's a touchy subject in the state of Texas. You know the. Um, Texas is a very large state and it has a lot of people. It has like 26, 27 million people. If you think about that, that's damn near 10% of the U.S. population. That's damn near 10% of the U.S. population that doesn't have direct access to physical therapy services, physical therapy care, physical therapist management. And we're the 49th worst state for access to physical therapist care in the United States. And we have tried every legislative session for the past 10 consecutive legislative sessions to garner direct access. And we have been repeatedly squashed out by um, lobbying bodies not to be named on a uh, public medium. (laughs) Medical Association, (laughs) orthopedic surgeons. (laughs) (laughs) That have put out propaganda against us, that have testified against us in... uh, in the legislative session, it, it, it's interesting. A lot of the senators and uh, people on the legislative committee really seem to like us, seem to be in favor of us, tell us that they're going to vote for us. And then all of a sudden, you know, you see them the next day and their 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 right back pocket is bulging and they've changed their vote, their vote. And, you know, they, they've got this big fat wallet full of money and they've decided that they don't support us anymore. They didn't vote this time. Uh, it's it, it, it's it's a struggle. Yeah. It's a struggle for some of our patients. You know, I have I have patients on a regular basis. Like, hey, Jared, you know, this was awesome. I really enjoyed working with you. What happens if this you know, like crops back up next year? And you're like, what if my shoulder starts bugging me again? Can I just pop back in and get a refresher on stuff? I'm like, well, you know, technically, no. You have to go back through and get another referral from your physician. And they're like, why? That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. And I'm like. <laughs> <laughs> you're you're preaching to the choir and they're like i can go i can go to my personal trainer i can go to my massage therapist i can i can go get acupuncture why can't i come see you 
And I say, please write a letter to your senator and, and express that concern because uh, that's something we're trying to get changed. Whew. And like and like Tyler was saying, a couple of our uh, representatives right didn't even show up. They declared absent to the vote. Um, but that's that's a whole another topic that we can get into on how much certain organizations are paying them that we looked up on followthemoney.org. But yeah, that is wild. That is wild that it's so hard in Texas to pass a bill. Um, Tyler, you're being quiet over there, buddy. Uh, no, Speak your mind. No, because that's kind of that's a whole different podcast. Yeah. <laughs> That's a whole different argument about things that we can reserve for another day. Okay. We are, ouch. <laughs> he is. He ain't out. Yeah, we, we've, we've discussed this uh, uh, quite a bit with Alan Besselink, and he's, uh, he's pretty fiery on uh, this topic as well. It, it just, yeah. I, I feel like I can say this somewhat as a student because I'm not there, but at what point do you, do you just start breaking the law continuously to where, I mean, it's almost like marijuana, right? You just keep, keep doing it until you finally just say, hey, it's legal. You just all just start doing direct access. Regard. <laughs> what are they going to do? Yeah, what are they going to do? Like, okay, that's fine. Now, I, now I'm not a physical therapist. I can, now I can do it. Yeah, if every physical therapist in Texas just starts treating patients like it's direct access across the board. It's just, I don't know. It's, yeah. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> All right, well, um, <laughs> since nobody wants to, to join the Rebel Alliance here, yeah, we'll, right. <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll take it back. You guys still with me? Yeah. Cool, cool. Um, I want to switch this back because we kind of got off on a direct access tangent. Uh, switch it back to the hum homunculus tattoo. I want a clear description of what mirror therapy is. I'm really not too up on that, Dr. Mark. So basically, this is where I think we need a, a big focus. So, you know, as PTs, we, we've done a really good job of we're bone experts, muscle experts. We can get stuff stretched out. We can get stuff, stuff stronger. But I don't think we address the CNS enough, which is where movement begins, right? So, like, how can we be movement experts but not ever talk about where movement starts? So we know through a lot of <clears throat> there's an abundance of research out there showing that with pain or with immobilization, our brains will start to change, meaning the areas that we're using less often, the representations in our brain and our sensory motor cortex will start to get smaller and the areas that we're using more will start to get larger. So we're getting these patients who most of them have been in pain for a long time. We just get them moving where oftentimes it's a lot better to start with mirror therapy or something along those lines to address the smudging like Dr. Hall referred to earlier to where if we can lay down, if we can change those, what's called cortical reorganization, meaning if we can offset those changes and maintain those representations when we try to get these people moving, it's going to be a lot easier. Like still to this day, if someone says, what's the most important thing in your clinic, I'd probably say my mirror. Whoa. Because. You Not know, the hydroculator? You sure about that? About that. <laughs> yeah. It's one, it's a magical one. That's what it is. The hydroculator is good for like heating up hot dogs and stuff, but. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but, um. I don't think that's sanitary, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, like even, even if you look at post-op, you know, people haven't moved their, say, ro say post-op rotator cuff. Um they haven't moved that arm for six weeks. So based off what we know with the research is we can assume that there's been some change in, I guess the homunculus, if you want to put it that way, there's been some change where that area is now smaller. So when it comes time to do active range of motion, we're trying to have them move a limb that their body doesn't necessarily recognize as easily. So we need to start at the central nervous system in order to get them, you know, we talk about optimal movement a lot. Like the word optimal gets thrown around a lot mm -hmm. where if you go to all these continuing ed courses or read all these blogs online and stuff, they talk tons about you know, position in the squat, position in the deadlift, you know, hold this position when you lift your arm up, but no one ever mentions the brain. Mm -hmm. I don't think you can really talk about proper movement unless you mention the brain itself because that's where it all begins. So, with the mirror, you know, we, we know that 25% of our neurons in our brain are mirror neurons, meaning if I watch you lift your arm up, my brain is starting to plan that movement for myself. 
So there's a lot of the things that we can do with the mirror to lay down that framework, maintain that cortical representation. So when we start to get these patients moving, if, you know, we've done, we've done the groundwork. The, the signals are there, the motor planning is there, and then we can start to move more. So I use my mirror all the time. What are some examples of mirror exercises that you have patients do? So like, for instance, if you take a, say we'll, we'll go post-op rotator cuff, say right shoulder, you know, if you put them in front of the mirror with just their left arm showing, if I'm looking in the mirror, my brain sees my right arm moving all over the place without any issues. So even though the patient can't move that right shoulder themselves, you can trick your brain into thinking that right shoulder is moving all over the place. And that in of itself will maintain that cortical representation of that right shoulder. Mm. So then when six weeks later, when you go to do active movement, you go to get them moving, you know, you haven't lost that representation and you don't need to fight to get it back then. If you don't address that, then they've gone six weeks without moving their right shoulder. We know that through research and science that the representation for that right shoulder in the homunculus has probably gone a lot smaller. So we can start to hypothesize that active range of motion and moving that shoulder is going to be a lot more difficult because it's not going to be as easily recognized. Oof. Uh, it, it goes right back into Dr. Hall's, you know, his, that patient was talking about with low back pain with lifting. You know, when we talk about smudging, that patient's nervous system, you know, he, in their brain that was having smudging, he didn't recognize his low back. I bet if you tested his lateralization as far as if his low back is moving right or left, I, I'd be willing to bet the scores were pretty poor. So half, half the battle with that patient is getting to you know, be familiar with his low back again. Know that it's there, know which way it's moving, and things like that. So it's tough to be movement experts without having a, a firm understanding on what's going on in the nervous system. Yeah. And Jared may be able to add to that. But Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I definitely <laughs> – Dr. Powers hit the uh, nail on the head there, and I, I would like to take it a step further, even to talk a little bit about cross-education. You know, I, I think back to when I was on clinical rotations, when I was in school, somebody after a post-op rotator cuff tear, they're in a swing for four, five, six weeks, and all you're doing is jiggling, you know, their surgical arm around, you're gently mobilizing it, maybe you're doing some really light submaximal isometrics, and you're completely ignoring the other arm. But we know from boatloads of exercise physiology and strength conditioning research that cross-education is a real phenomenon. You go ahead and work on that other side, and you're going to increase or maintain the strength and the neural connectivity to the involved side that's immobilized, that's not moving. Um, so if early on, the first four, five, or six weeks, while somebody's in a sling, somebody's in a walking boot, somebody's in a cast, if you're not working the other side, you're allowing them to get further behind the curve. Yep. Because so much of strength so much of movement is based on neural neural drive. You know, you like like Dr. Power said, movement starts in the brain. It doesn't start at your shoulder. It doesn't start at your knee. It starts in the brain. And we think about getting in the gym and you know getting people really strong, getting muscle hypertrophy, so on and so forth. But we know that for the first three, four, maybe even five weeks, primary strength gains are all neurally related, right? So you're increasing the corticospinal drive. You're increasing the ability of the motor units to fire together. You're increasing lots of neural efficiency. It has nothing to do with, you know, tissue hypertrophy and muscle protein synthesis. And the fact that we're neglecting that early on in so many of our patients that are in a boot or in a cast or in a sling is allowing them to get behind the curve instead of ahead of the curve. Very awesome. Awesome. This um, is, I'm going to, I'm going to just say this. I, I don't know if Tyler or Dimir is feeling this, but this is, I'm definitely trying to reach and try to, to touch all this information because I feel like it's going over my head, but I'm, I'm loving it. Yeah, this is yeah. awesome. This is just true. trying to keep up. Yeah, we're just trying to keep up. I literally have a notepad right beside me like this. All right, going to look this up later. Gonna look this up later. Going to have to listen to the episode five more times. But with, with that, what about being, this way? You're, just, you're exercising the brain. 
Yeah. Oh my absolutely. god, it's coming full circle now. Absolutely. Uh, Just like you would exercise the body, we need to exercise the brain. Absolutely. Absolutely. So constantly being around people that are smarter than you definitely get you hopefully a little smarter, right? <laughs> exercise if uh, you decide to listen to them. So, so real quick on that mirror, so you are, they are still in a sling in their left arm and you are having them move their right arm so their brain gets ready to move their left arm when it does come out of the sling. Right, so like if you're moving their right arm in front of a mirror, the brain's gonna visualize that as the left arm moving. So it'll maintain the representation in the, in the central nervous system of that left arm moving all over the place without issue through full motion it's going to maintain that cortical representation of that left shoulder. You just tell them to imagine you're moving your left arm, but don't move it. No, you just put them in front of a mirror. So if their right arm's in a sling, if you move in the left arm in front of a mirror, that's going to look like their right arm. Mm -hmm. So their brain will process as that like, Hey, look, my right arm is moving all over the place. This is awesome. So it's, 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 it's theoretically, it's a way to move in a mobilized limb. Okay. Okay. And there are no, no cues needed. You just yeah. ask them to do it. Right? Yeah. You literally just sit in front of a mirror and say, Hey, move around. You know, you get into functional movements. Like, you know, I want you to do some basic you know, ER, IR overhead, but then have them reach, you know, have them reach behind their back, have them scratch their head, have them reach into their pocket, you know, all those functional type things. So that way, when you go to start moving later on, you know, all that, you know, the cortical representation and all that planning is already there. Beautiful. <laughs> Tyler's making that face of he's just had his mind blown for sure. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so, uh, so before we get into the final question of the day, I just wanted to ask you all a, a quick follow up to all of this because I'm kind of nerding out over here. I'm not going to lie. Um, <laughs> whenever I envision myself in the future, I see myself with a bald head and big arms like Jared and Mark. Um, what? But, what are you? Why are you? Don't, yeah, don't, 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 don't try to figure it out. I'm just. <laughs> Anyways, but more importantly, I want to sound and, and and be as educated as you all in the PT profession. So what are some resources that you all use? I know I think to myself, maybe a residency, maybe going from an OCS, uh, continuing ed courses. So what are some resources uh, you all are more than welcome to self-plug with anything that you all are doing or anything that you all have going on right now? So definitely do that. Chad, I'll let you go with this one first. All right, cool, man. Uh, <laughs> You know, there there is an absolute wealth of information out there, and I, I I talk to my students. You know, I have students all year long, pretty much like nine out of twelve months of the year. I talk to them constantly about getting engaged with the right people on social media, which you guys are already doing. You know, there is so much content being put out by absolutely brilliant people. You know, David Butler, the NOI group, Norma Mosley, they're putting out content all the time. Jeff Moore, the Institute of Clinical Excellence, Adrian Lowe, Pain Reframe Podcast with Tim Flynn, they're putting out just dynamite information constantly. Greg Lehman, he teaches all over the world. He puts out the most insanely long evidence-based blogs that I've ever read my entire life. Like, there is there's information constantly out there to be learning. As far as con ed, I mean, you got to be careful because there's a lot of bogus con ed out there. And, you know, that's that's one of the things I would like to snap my fingers and change about the profession, you know, based on your, your question earlier. I would like to make the the rules for teaching a con ed course a little bit more stringent because there's so much BS out there. There's probably 90% BS and 10% legit stuff. Mm. And, you know, if, if you get into the right, the right groups, you know, um, Next Gen and ICE and NOI and ISPI, uh, EIM, Optum, Manual Therapy, uh, you're, you're going to get good stuff, you know. Uh, as, you know as a matter of fact, I, I mentioned Optum. I'm actually in the process of partnering with Optum Manual Therapy myself, and we're going to be putting out an OCS prep course coming out uh, this fall, going to go live in October we're working on right now, working hard and heavy on trying to get that out to, to really be an awesome resource. And it's a little bit more interactive than some of the current programs out there. You know, uh, I, I think that they have a good fellowship. I think next gen has a great fellowship. I think EIM has a great fellowship. I, I, I think that continuing education is absolutely paramount. We come out of school as generalists. We don't know very much, honestly. And a lot of the stuff that we know isn't, isn't ideal. So, Continuing your education after school is 
It, it, absolutely a must for a for a doctorate level profession. You know, we look we look over across the street at the physicians, and you know, minimum family practice guy, he's got to go to a three year residency after he graduates medical school. And um, if we want to be experts, you know, you you got to put in one, two, three years after school of of hard work of of synthesizing the the literature, and that never stops your entire profession. But to really level yourself up, those those first couple of years out of school are uh, they're they're just paramount. Absolutely. Yeah, I like to challenge my students and just constantly be asking, like, does this make sense? From a science perspective, does, does what this class claims or what this treatment claims, you know, does this make sense from a science perspective? The second you start thinking, hey, you know, I feel pretty good. I think I know what I'm doing with everything. That's when it's time to start challenging yourself even more. But if I was recommending everything, start with a firm understanding of pain. You know, explain pain's a great place to start. Um, Adrian Lau and Puentador's um, Therapeutic Neuroscience Education book is a great, that's a guide for clinicians. That's a great place to start. But if you have a firm understanding of what pain is and what's going on with the nervous system during pain, you can start to apply that to different dimensions. Where if you jump too far into orthopedics or too far into this specific type of treatment, it's really easy to start getting tunnel vision really fast. Mm-hmm. You, you, I see you can see now in experienced experience clinicians. You know, you go to a weekend continuing ed course on medical screening. The next week, you think everybody has cancer. Mm-hmm. So start with start with a foundation, and the foundation should always be the nervous system because that's where everything starts. If you get a good understanding of pain in the nervous system, it's really easy to build off that. And that would be my main recommendation. So uh, real quick, um, last last question of the day. Uh, we normally ask, what is your favorite duck? And uh, I know that we only have about two minutes left. So, so real quick, it could be a real duck, a cartoon duck, whatever. Um, and Dr. Powers, if you don't mind going first. What's your favorite duck? Yeah. Would be Reed from the Mighty Ducks that does a knuckle puck, man. Okay. Nice. <laughs> it's awesome. knuckle puck time. Right, right. Dr. Hall? Oh, dude. My favorite duck is uh, is grilled on a plate with some orange sauce, man. <laughs> <laughs> the eating. Okay, I see it. I see it. Uh, awesome. That's a first for sure. Awesome. So yeah. uh, where can people find you all if they want to continue to look at your content and, and, and see you all correcting people on social media? I'm a big Facebook guy, so you can always just friend me at um, Mark Powers, you know, on Facebook. Um, I pretty much accept everybody. I have tons of friends I've never met, like Dr. Hall, who hopefully that changes soon. <laughs> um, I'm on Twitter at, at, um, at PT Skeptic. I don't tweet as much as I used to. I'm trying to get back to it, but Facebook's probably the best bet. Yeah, same here. Uh, I mean, I'm primarily a Facebook guy. I get crap about it all the time because I haven't ventured very much over into like Twitter or Instagram world. Um, Teddy Wills, if you guys know Teddy Wilsey, strength coach therapy over there on Instagram, he's giving me crap all the time about not uh, posting more there. Um, on Facebook, it's just it's just my name, Jared Hall. I mean, I, I run a blog that's uh, Dr. Jared Hall DPT at uh, blogspot.com, mm-hmm. and then. Um, uh, on Instagram, I think I'm um, same thing, Dr. Jared Hall, DPT. And then on Twitter, I think I'm Jared underscore Hall. But like I said, very, very rarely on, on, on Twitter. Awesome. So, awesome. Thank you guys so much for joining us and blowing our minds. Oh, man, thanks for having us. It was fun. This is my first podcast. This was cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My first podcast as well. Oh, y'all are definitely going to be on many more. Absolutely. Sure. Absolutely. All right, gentlemen. Thank you. Thank, thank you. Guys. Have a good one. Thank you. We'll talk to you later. later.